One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. Oh, he's so handsome. Come in, everybody. Episode 304 of the podcast. It is Sweeping America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, October 11, 2020, people. I hope everybody had a great weekend watching college football. And I know you did, because as I told you on Thursday, I said Thursday, this would be by far the best weekend of college football this fall so far. It was going to feel like your first big college football Saturday, and it certainly did. And so what we will do is what I believe we are just going to keep doing on these Monday episodes, which is rather than kind of spend 18 or 20 minutes breaking down a huge, huge, huge topic. Instead, what we'll do is I think we'll look at a bunch of different topics from throughout the day because I do think that is the best way to approach these Monday shows. So much happens on a college football Saturday. There's so much to get into. And so here is a quick rundown of today's show and then a little scheduling note on the back end before we get to it. We are going to lead with that insane Bama Ole Miss game because I think that while the focus is on Bama, I do think it probably needs to be a little bit on Lane Kiffin. The guy probably doesn't get enough credit for just how good he is, and frankly, just how good he might have this Ole Miss program going once he gets rolling. We'll transition to Georgia. We will transition to Clemson. Then what I will do I'll take a quick break just to kind of break it up. I'll put a transition into the show. Just let everybody catch their breath kind of at the midway point. We will talk about the Texas A&M win, why it was so important for Jimbo Fisher. We will talk about LSU just looking absolutely terrible. And I do think I was right on that one. I just don't think LSU is very good this year. And we will close on that fiasco at Arkansas that cost them a win over Auburn. Also, one more real quick scheduling note before we get into today's show, and that's that if you notice this episode in your feed a little bit earlier than normal on this Monday, uh, it is because of the fact that I think what I'm going to do, at least for the Monday episode from now on, is to adjust kind of the schedule of it. Traditionally, I put it out first thing Monday morning, usually at you know four, uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock Eastern time. I know that many of you have already left for the office, especially those of you on the East Coast. So what I am going to do instead, I'm going to go ahead and drop it uh, late, late, late uh, Sunday night into Monday, a little bit after midnight. I don't know if it affects you guys at all in terms of when you get it or how you downloaded it, but let me know. This episode, though, will be in your feed first thing Monday so you can have it going into work. That's a scheduling note. Let's get started. Before we do, remind you, as I always do, make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Really does help us move up those iTunes charts. Also, make sure you're following on all the social media pages. Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Pod on Twitter. Uh, and as I've mentioned a few times, I have really ramped up the YouTube channel. You guys love the YouTube stuff. We've basically doubled our subscribers since I started posting more during college football season. So go find me on YouTube. You could search Aaron Torres or Aaron Torres Podcast and subscribe there. Uh, like I said, just got rolling, but we're up to about 350 or so subscribers as I record this afternoon. And with that said, people, no more time to waste because as I said... Let's talk college football because it was, without a doubt, the best college football Saturday that we have had to date. It was the first time that it really felt like real college football, right? Like, there's been a couple Saturdays here and there where first we started with the Army Middle Tennessee stuff and the Texas State versus SMU, and we kind of transitioned into kind of these low-level Big 12 and ACC games. The SEC gets started two weeks ago, but this was the first Saturday where it felt like one game after the other after the other. It almost felt like an NCAA tournament type setting where 
The second one game was finishing, another big one was starting. We go from the Red River shootout, which I don't even know if we'll talk about because there's so much to get into, and A&M straight into Georgia-Tennessee, straight into Arkansas-Auburn, straight into Notre Dame-Florida State, straight into Kentucky-Mississippi State, Clemson-Alabama, etc., etc. And so I bring up all of this to say it was a great day, and as I kind of put together the show... I was trying to figure out what do I believe is the biggest story coming out of college football on Saturday. And I don't know that there was like one big earth-changing story like say a few weeks ago uh, when Oklahoma lost to Kansas State, potentially next week if Georgia beats Alabama, if Clemson were to lose. So I do think to me, instead of uh, what, what was the biggest story, I just think the biggest story to me, or at least the most interesting story, was that Alabama Ole Miss game. And I think if you watched it, uh, you know where I'm going with this, but it was just a surreal, insane game to watch. If you listen to Thursday's episode, I did tell you that I thought Lane Kiffin would pull out his full bag of tricks. I did think that because he has the personal vendetta against Nick Saban, that it would be close, it would be somewhat competitive, and that he wouldn't let his foot off the gas until the very end. What I did not realize is that Nick Saban would not let his foot off the gas either because he would absolutely have to keep his foot on the gas to keep up with Ole Miss and eventually win that game. It was incredible. It was surreal. It was uh, literally unprecedented. Nick Saban has never had a day that bad statistically defensively since he got to Alabama. The final score was 63-48. to How about this? Two teams combined for over 1,300 yards of offense. Alabama, 723 yards of offense. Ole Miss, over 640 yards of offense. And it was just insane. It was bonkers. And I do think that while most of the national media is probably going to spend today talking in depth about Alabama, their defense, are they in trouble, like all the corny cliche stuff, I'm going to do the opposite. And I think one of the reasons that you guys like listening to this show is because I don't always just take the big, broad, boring topics and break them down in the big, broad, most boring way possible. Sometimes I think there's a story behind a story, and sometimes I think the people in the media focus too much on the wrong story instead of the right story. And to me, the big story coming out of this Monday is not Alabama's defense. I think it's Ole Miss's offense, and I think it's Ole Miss as a football program, and I think it's Lane Kiffin and what he has done in three games since he arrived in Oxford. Because while this guy has been uh, really, for lack of a better term, essentially a national punching bag for the last 10 years, dating back to his time as the Oakland Raiders head coach, I think he is proving to be one of the great offensive minds in all of football right now. And when you think about the offensive explosion going on in football, that really is saying something. So when I look back on Saturday, what I don't see is Alabama's defense like, like you know, let's talk Alabama's defense. What I think about is Ole Miss and what I think about is that offense. And what I think about is what they have done so far this season. First of all, if you look at the three games... They're number two in total offense in college football right now. Ironically, the only team ranked ahead of them is Alabama, in large part because of what Alabama did, but it's also partly what Ole Miss has done relative to the competition. 600-plus yards of offense against Florida in week one. Kyle Trask, his whole Heisman candidacy is largely based on what he had to do against Ole Miss to keep up and eventually surpass Ole Miss. 459 yards, 42 points against Kentucky in week two. By the way, I say it all the time. We got a lot of Kentucky fans who listen to this show, and a lot of you were really frustrated after last Saturday and that loss, and I understand why you were, but what I told you was, this is who Ole Miss is. Lane Kiffin knows that the only way that he is going to beat teams is to score and score often and score in bunches. And so when you look at what Kentucky did last week, 459 yards of total offense is almost 200 less than what Alabama gave up. Also, the 42 points less than what Alabama gave up. And Kentucky had an overtime period in that game. So 459 yards and 42 points against Kentucky. And then on Saturday, the surreal 
big, broad, headline, lightning strike kind of game where they had 647 yards and 48 points against that Nick Saban coach defense. And I think to contextualize how impressive it is, you really just have to be a pseudo-historian of college football. And I don't claim to necessarily be that, but what I can tell you is I have been watching college football uh, really my whole life, but really on a professional level essentially since Nick Saban got to Alabama. And since Nick Saban got to Alabama, I can comfortably say that I have seen just about every single game that he has coached in, certainly all the SEC games, certainly all the big games, certainly all the playoff games, and I have never seen a singular moment in time like I did on Saturday night when Alabama literally had no answer for what Ole Miss was doing on the offensive side of the football when Alabama was on defense. And when I say that, what I mean is this. Alabama has had bad days defensively, don't get me wrong, but usually when that happens, it's because of a singular transcendent performance by a singular player, and that player usually almost always is a quarterback, right? Last year there was Joe Burrow, couple years before that was the Deshaun Watson games, one that Deshaun Watson won, one that he lost in back-to-back national championship games. There was Cam Newton many years ago, and maybe most famously, there was the Johnny Manziel game, which for whatever has become of Johnny Manziel, was still one of the singular greatest performances that I have ever seen in college football from one individual player. Of course, while those were great individual performances, I have never ever, ever, ever seen anything like what Ole Miss did on Saturday against a Nick Saban coach defense. And what I mean by that is this. It wasn't one individual player that dominated Alabama. It was the collective scheme. It was the collective coaching. And it was Lane Kiffin having Nick Saban on his heels the entire game. If you watch that game, it was every play... Alabama had no idea what was coming, where to go, where the ball was going. I have never seen a moment or a game where so many plays against an Alabama coach defense where there was just wide open guys and there were guys catching the ball with wide open space in front of them, taking a five-yard catch and turning it into 25 yards. That happened on every possession all night long. Again, it wasn't any individual guy. Matt Cora, the quarterback, threw for 365 yards, but Ole Miss also had two players rush for over 100 yards each, which is the first time that's ever happened to Alabama, and how about this, two receivers with 140-plus yards receiving, and so it's like I said, I have never, ever, ever seen Alabama on their heels being outcoached and Nick Saban and his staff having absolutely no idea where the ball is going or how to stop it. Now, they did eventually outscore Ole Miss, but I don't think it takes away from what Ole Miss did offensively to the point that, I don't know if you saw this, but after the game, Alabama's defense even went so far as to accuse Ole Miss of stealing signals and of having their hand signals that allowed Ole Miss to kind of know what defense was coming. And I'll I'll give Lane Kiffin credit for this. He quickly squashed that. He quickly went on Twitter, and what he basically said was, dude, we didn't have your hand signals. And he goes, even if we did, it wouldn't help us anyway. We play so fast and we are so aggressive that even if we had your hand signals, we're snapping the ball before you're even signaling to your defense what you want to do or where you want to play. And so I give so much credit to Ole Miss because even though they won, I do believe, even though they lost, excuse me, I do believe that they are the story coming out of this. And I got to be honest, I think in the bigger picture, it's an incredible story about how quickly Lane Kiffin has completely flipped this program, how he's given them an identity, and how much of a thorn in the side I believe that Ole Miss is going to be for the SEC going forward. Now listen, Is this program ever going to be good enough to win a national championship? History says probably not. For people who don't know, Ole Miss is one of only four teams that have never made the SEC championship game in the current SEC. Uh, One is Vanderbilt, one is Kentucky, one is Texas A&M, who just joined the conference about eight years ago, and the other is Ole Miss. And so history says that, yeah, Ole Miss probably not going to win a national championship. So I'm not saying that Ole Miss is probably going to win a national championship. 
But when I think about how fast Lane Kiffin has identified uh, or has, has, has given Ole Miss an identity and he has gotten them to play at the speed that he wants to play and do the things that he wants to do on offense, I think about it like this. What is it going to be like in a year? What is it going to be like in two years? Because when you look at what happened on Saturday, you have to understand one thing. You got to understand that this is just the beginning for Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. Keep in mind, I looked this up because I wanted to confirm it. Ole Miss did not have a single spring practice last spring in February and March. They were scheduled to start. It got pushed back from the, because of the pandemic, and it was eventually canceled. They get back to campus. They got a bunch of positive tests. They're slow out of the gate having actual practices. And then they jump into the SEC, and in year one, in three weeks, they've already put up 600-plus yards against Florida, 600-plus yards against Alabama, and Kiffin hasn't even brought in his own guys yet. Not to mention that the defense is abysmal, and that's going to take an overhaul. But can you imagine what it's going to be like when Lane Kiffin hits the recruiting trail with the tape and with the film of what he just did to Alabama and what he just did to Florida? Are you kidding me? This guy's going to be able to go into the, the homes of every quarterback, every receiver, every running back, every tight end and say, bruh, come with me. We're going to have fun. You're going to get a lot of touches. We're going to score a lot of points, and you're going to go to the league because of me. And again, if you need me to confirm it, two, two, two running backs rushed for 100-plus yards. Two receivers had 140-plus yards rushing. If your son is a wide receiver running back, you don't think he wants to go play for Lane Kiffin? And I do think the defense will get better because, one, it can't get very much worse, but, two, because of the fact that eventually you're going to see the dynamics of the offense and say, listen, come play for us on defense. You don't need to be great. We're going to take all the pressure off of you, and you're, of course, going to be showcased in the SEC. And so, to me, I know it was a frustrating loss for Ole Miss fans. I know they came out of this game disappointing, but without talking to Ole Miss fans, I got to think that you're kind of excited about Saturday. Now, the defense clearly has to be better. The defense clearly cannot keep giving up, one, 700 yards of offense like they did against Alabama, but two, uh, the defense also cannot, uh, just needs to be better, needs to be more consistent, can't be giving up 40 points a game. But I just don't know how, if you're not an Ole Miss fan right now, how you are not fired up. I know week one, it was all about Mike Leach. I know week two, it was all about Sam Pittman. But if you're talking about, to me, the coach that I would be the most excited about if I was a SEC fan base in terms of new coaches, I think you can make the case for Sam Pittman because he's completely changed Arkansas. But I don't know how you can't be excited about Ole Miss. Ole Miss fans are literally sitting here on a Monday morning saying, we got the most explosive, exciting offense in college football with probably the best play caller in college football. And this is just the beginning. We are just getting started. Not saying we're going to win a national championship, but it is going to be fun along the way. And so I do want to give Ole Miss a ton of credit. I do quickly want to transition to the Alabama side of things because I do think that that is something that needs to be discussed. And I do know that Alabama fans in this moment in time are incredibly, incredibly frustrated with Alabama just because of what happened on Saturday, right? Like Alabama, the standard is you're supposed to score on every possession on offense and you're supposed to shut them out on defense. And so to see the Alabama defense as helpless and unable to make a stop as they were, I do think it was concerning to Alabama fans. I know it was frustrating to Alabama fans. And I think that there is a legitimate fear going forward as you get to the meat of the schedule, where you still have to play Georgia, you still have to play LSU, which at the very least can score points. Yeah, obviously, you still have to play the Mississippi States and a few other teams. But what I would say is, while I understand Alabama fans are mad, I would say I don't think it's time to be concerned just yet. Because the bottom line is that a couple things. First of all, it's like I said, Ole Miss I think might be the most dynamic offense in college football that we've seen this year, right? Like we always default to Oklahoma being this or Texas being that or Washington State or wherever Mike Leach is. I look at Ole Miss, I think they're the most explosive offense in the country. It's like I said, 600 plus yards against Florida, 42 points against Kentucky, 650 yards against Alabama, but this is just who they are. And not only is it who they are, it's who they have to be to even be competitive. 
The reason that Ole Miss played so fast, ran so many plays, scored so many points, not only on Alabama, but on but throughout the season, is because they know that's what they have to do to win football games. And so I just think when when I think every individual fan base, and we got a lot of fans from all over college football who listen to this show, but whether it's uh, Kentucky fans who played Ole Miss last week, whether it's Alabama fans who play Ole Miss this past week, whether it is Arkansas fans who play Ole Miss in the future, whether it's LSU, Auburn fans, whoever, you have to you you have to almost take the the Ole Miss game in the same way that you would have taken the Alabama game four, five, six years ago when Alabama was a freight train that couldn't be stopped, right? Like, if you lost to Alabama 28-3, to and back in the day Alabama didn't score that many points, it wasn't necessarily an indictment on your team being good or bad. It was just Alabama is so much better than everybody else. And I don't think that's a perfect apples-to-apples analogy in this case, but I do think Ole Miss is just such an outlier to everybody else in college football that they're going to score a lot of points. And not only are they going to score a lot of points, they're never going to take the foot off the gas, right? Like Alabama, when Alabama gets up on you 28-3, to they're going to take out their starters and get their backup some reps. Same with a Clemson, same with an Ohio State, same, same with the good teams, and even the not good teams. When they get up big enough, they want their backups to get some experience. With Ole Miss, they know because of their defense – not only does the offense have to be awesome, but they can't let their foot off the gas. And so when I look at Alabama's schedule, I know everybody's freaking out. I know they're super frustrated. I know that fans want to, oh, Pete Golding, the defensive coordinator, he's got to go. He's got to be fired. I just think it's more a reflection of Ole Miss. And by the way, a primetime home game going against a former lane, uh, Nick Saban assistant then I think it is a reflection on Ole Miss being, or Alabama's defense being terrible. I would also say, look at the rest of the schedule. Georgia, for as good as they are, and I'm going to talk about Georgia in a second, Georgia is not the dynamic offense that Ole Miss is. Mississippi State certainly is not, after what we saw these last couple games. Uh, LSU might have, might be improved offensively, but defensively they are a total mess Auburn is certainly a total mess offensively. Kentucky, I think, is very limited in what they can do offensively. So I just think if you're an Alabama fan, context matters. I know it's the day or two after a game in which you gave up 647 yards of total offense, but I'm telling you the defense is not as bad as you think, and I think it'll be reflected this weekend in a game against Georgia. And so with that said, let's get into the Georgia side of things because Georgia, I think you can argue, right up there with maybe A&M, maybe Clemson. I think Georgia was maybe the most impressive team on Saturday, and I bring them up after the Alabama game because, as I've said a couple times, this coming Saturday, 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 Central, Georgia at Bama. So if you want to feel for right away how good these two teams are relative to everybody else, This is it on Saturday because these are two of the three best teams that have played so far this season, uh, obviously with Clemson being the other one. And when I look at Georgia, I got to tell you, man, listen, I have been critical of Kirby Smart. I I, I just think in many ways he's been a fraud, a phony, a fake, not so much in what he is and what he's done, but I was always kind of out on Kirby Smart after the situation where they lost to Alabama in the SEC title game and claim they still deserved a playoff spot. That's when I was out on Kirby Smart. That was obviously the game where they had the Justin Fields fake punt, and it was just a disaster, and they blew a second straight double-digit lead. But I got to tell you this. Kirby Smart has this team and this program, I think, playing as well as they have since he got to Athens four seasons ago. And I think it is reflected in what happened on Saturday. Because I'm guessing most of you saw the game, but for those of you who didn't, Tennessee comes in 2-0 off a dominant win over Missouri and Georgia just manhandled them the final score was 44 to 21 but I don't think 44 to 21 is reflective of what this game was like because if you watch the game Tennessee of their three scoring drives to total 21 points of the three of them the first one came on a scoop and score in which Stetson Bennett fumbled the ball on the nine yard line returned for a touchdown by Tennessee 
And then the second touchdown drive was a one-play drive when Kirby Smart went for it on fourth and one at his own 36-yard line. So it's a turnover on downs, one play later, touchdown for Tennessee. And so I bring it up to say that while the final score was still a 23-point margin of victory for Georgia, the reality is it was actually much worse because 14 of the 21 points basically came off Georgia turnovers, one on a turnover on downs in their own uh, in their own territory, and the other one on an actual turnover. But the rest of the game, they totally dominated. Tennessee, which again looked really good two Saturdays ago against Missouri, 215 yards of total offense, 214 yards of total offense, excuse me, negative one yards rushing. They didn't get a single, they didn't get positive yardage in the rushing game. Now, I know that's a little bit deceiving because Jarrett Garantano took a bunch of sacks and fumbled the ball and did all that sorts of stuff, but 214 yards of total offense against a good Tennessee team. And on top of that, it's what I just said a minute ago. Three turnovers forced on Jared, uh, three turnovers forced in the game, two on Jarrett Garantano, and they just made Jarrett Garantano's life a living hell. Jarrett Garantano, of course, is the Tennessee uh, quarterback. And what I would say is that while, again, I think I would argue I have been maybe the most critical person of Kirby Smart in the national media, this might be Georgia's year, guys. Like, this might be Georgia's year. Because first of all, in a sport where essentially no one plays any defense at all anymore, uh, Georgia's defense is awesome. They are awesome. On the season, they actually rank second in college football in total defense. And I think it's important to note two things on that. First of all, the only team ranked ahead of them is Houston, which has played a grand total of one game. So So essentially, Georgia has the best defense in college football. That's one. And two, it's not as though they've played chopped liver. I mean, Auburn, say what you want about them, they're half decent. To hold them to six points, pretty darn impressive. To hold um, Tennessee to 21 points, but you look at the yardage, 214 yards, I think that's a reflection of how good this Georgia team is and how balanced they are. And I do think, understandably, the question going forward is going to be really what it's been with Georgia the last couple years. Are they going to get enough play at quarterback for the defense and running game to do the rest? They're kind of Georgia, essentially what Alabama was six, seven, eight years ago. And I know that Georgia, for a Georgia fan that's listening, you've opened up the offense and it's different with uh, Todd Monk in the new offensive coordinator. I get that. And I do think to Georgia's credit, I do think they opened things up a little bit in the second half when they got that lead yesterday against Tennessee. But I would also say that from what I have seen, I actually do think they are balanced enough to compete for a national championship and to potentially win the first national championship since friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, Herschel Walker, was at Georgia. By the way, for a Georgia fan that's tuning in for the first time, had Herschel Walker on the show about two weeks ago, got to go back and listen. It was an all-time interview. But when I look at this Georgia team, what I see is... I think a quarterback that's probably better than people give him credit for, right? This kid Stetson Bennett, everybody, oh, he was a fifth stringer and he's this and he's that. Well, if you watch the Tennessee game, yes, in some ways he's limited, but he's pretty accurate. He's pretty confident when he drops back and he's probably a better athlete than we want to give him credit for. Picked up a few nice plays with his feet on the ground, including a touchdown run. And then two, the offensive line is just a monstrosity who basically dominates everybody that they play so far. And I understand that, you know, look, it's going to be different. You're going to have to face challenges along the way. But they handled, I mean, all things considered, without one of their better running backs, James Cook, by the way, 193 yards of rushing against a good Tennessee front seven. By the way, really quickly on Tennessee, shout out to the kid Henry Toto. That guy is a monster, okay? That guy made every tackle yesterday. Um, But when I look at Georgia, I look at a team that I think is good enough to win the national championship. And I think they're really good enough this year. Like I think there's been other years where they were good enough to make the playoff to be in that conversation. But I didn't think they had enough once they got there to actually win the two games needed to claim the championship. I think last year, they would have been a better opponent in the, uh, in the playoff than Oklahoma was, but of course, they lost to LSU in the SEC title game and they weren't going to get in. 
Um, so I, I, I think that this year they actually have enough balance, at least as of right now, to do both. Now, I will say, I actually in some ways feel bad for Georgia because this is a heck of a year to get Alabama as the crossover game in the SEC because if you don't play Alabama, you're almost certainly your entire season comes down to the Florida game and you're basically having to win one game to get to the SEC title game undefeated. And even if you lose in the SEC title game, I think in this specific year, you would have a strong argument to make the college football playoff. However, now you have to play Bama in the regular season. And with Bama, that's going to be a tough hill to climb to beat them twice in the regular season, once in Tuscaloosa. Obviously, if you eat, whether you win or lose, you're still going to have to play them in the SEC championship game if you get there. And so what it essentially comes down to for Georgia, I believe, is this, is that when you look at Georgia's schedule, they've already beaten Auburn. They do not play Ole Miss, which I think weirdly is a huge benefit to them. They do not play... Uh, Texas A&M, and they already played Tennessee. And so basically their entire season comes down to this. Can they win two out of three games with the Alabama regular season game, the Florida regular season game, and the SEC title game? They win two out of three, they're going to the playoff. They win two out of three, they're going to the playoff. They are going to be a really good team, but I believe that this is the best team of the Kirby Smart era. If you remember, I had Clemson over Georgia as my national championship game in the preseason that probably would have changed if Ohio State was in the mix, but I bring it up to say, I think Georgia's really good. I think they showed it, and I think in a sport where fewer and fewer teams play actual defense outside of Clemson, who we're going to get into in a minute, Georgia plays some real defense, and they look really, really, really good. All right, I do want to wrap uh, this segment. Like I said, I'll just throw in a quick break just so you guys can pause some of you coming into work, whatever. I do want to wrap on Clemson because Clemson, Number one team in the country, uh, just absolutely dominated Miami. Final score in that game was 42-17, to 17, but again, if you watch the games, and I know you guys did, Miami uh, returned a kick, a, a blocked kick for a touchdown, so they basically had one offensive touchdown. But when I look at back at this game, I think what I would say is essentially what I said on, Saturday, on last Thursday's show. I'm not surprised by the result because when I came into this game, I really felt like, if we're being perfectly honest, that I felt like Clemson was not only a more talented team and not only was Miami a little bit overrated. I mean, look, when you talk about Miami, their best win coming in was against a Louisville team that is now 1-3, okay? And that's no knock on Louisville. They're rebuilding under Scott Satterfield. They went 2-10 two, two years ago. But we were building Miami's entire resume off beating Louisville, who has lost every game since, whose only win is against Western Kentucky. And so I thought that not only was Miami severely less talented, but I also believed that Dabo Sweeney, for essentially the only time in his career, or in the last couple years, I should say, he had a regular season game where he could play the nobody believes in us card in that locker room. And what I mean by that is, is that it's been a long time since there's a team in the ACC that people are saying is good enough to hang with Clemson. Now, part of that, maybe that's the Miami mystique. Maybe that's, uh, you know, people wanting Miami to be back more than they actually are. By the way, as it turns out, Miami, not back. Uh, when you, Beating a 1-3 Louisville team does not qualify you as back, okay? But I thought Dabo had a big stylistic and strategic advantage in that he could go into his locker room in a home game and say, fellas, some of those people out there think this team can hang with you. Some of those national media members are calling for a closed game. Some of those media members are calling for an upset. You going to let Miami come into our house and dominate us and beat us in our house? That was Dabo's go-to, and I think it worked effectively. I know it worked effectively. That's why I like Clemson, and it's largely what happened. I think you can make the case this was one of Clemson's best performances in the regular season, especially relative to the competition, in a very, very, very long time. On offense, or on, uh, let's start on defense, because they just, poor De'Ara King just got annihilated, right? And I think De'Ara King's a great story, transferred from Houston, 
Um, you know, in a little bit of a really sad part, uh, his father passed away this year. The Miami program really rallied around him. He's a very talented player, and he was looking like an early season Heisman candidate. But you could tell that he had never seen a defense that big, that fast, that physical, because Miami just annihilated them up front. Clemson, or excuse me, Miami finishes with 210 yards of total offense. Uh, poor De'Ara King, 12 of 28 passing for 121 yards. So essentially it's four, four yards a catch on under 50% completion. So Miami physically dominates, uh, uh, Clemson physically dominates Miami up front on offense, on defense. And then on offense, I'm tripping over all sorts of words here. On offense, it was just you know, the, the, the Travis Etienne show. Travis Etienne, senior running back, so special, 149 yards rushing, couple breakaway plays, couple nice catches out of the backfield, and they just completely dominated. And what Saturday night was about for Clemson was about showing the world kind of what we are seeing, uh, what we saw in that Michael Jordan documentary. Remember Michael Jordan documentary? I talked about it a little bit on the last show, how everyone kept trying to create rivals for Michael Jordan um, you know, whether it was Clyde Drexler or Reggie Miller or Patrick Ewing or Charles Barkley or Stockton and Malone, Gary Payton, whoever, everybody, uh, you know, is this the year the Bulls go down? And every year the Bulls won. And that was Cle- Clemson last night was kind of, Cle- Clemson was Michael Jordan and Miami was Clyde Drexler. The media is trying to create this rival. Oh, Miami's kind of the same. They recruit kind of well. They, they, they have a kind of a Heisman Trophy quarterback. And Clemson, it was clear, took that person. was just like, no, 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 no. We are going to show you how much better we are. We are going to dominate. And that is exactly what they did. And when I look at the bigger picture of this game, a couple things. Three things, really. First one, I think it shows the gap between the top three teams in the country, maybe even the top two, three, and everybody else. Again, I'm going to give Alabama a pass for Saturday. But I think, I don't think Miami is that bad. Like I think of the teams that are playing right now, I think Miami is one of the top 10 to 12 to 15 teams in the country. But the gap between them and Clemson is still massive. It's still huge. So that's one. Two, I want to give a quick shout out to Trevor Lawrence. I remember talking about this following the playoff last year with Trevor Lawrence, when he really got beat up by Ohio State. And again, part of it goes back to the ACC situation, where when you look at the ACC, there simply aren't that many challengers for Clemson on a night-in, night-out basis. And so he got to the playoff, and Ohio State beat him up. If you remember, Sean Wade, his father came on this show a few weeks ago, got ejected for targeting. Um, and, And Trevor Lawrence really got beat up Bounced back every time he took a big hit, got back up, led Clemson to the win in Tempe in that college football playoff game. And I saw a lot of that last night. I saw a lot of it on Saturday night against Miami where Miami tried to get physical with him. Miami's best defensive player, popped for targeting, thrown out of the game, gave a hard hit to Trevor Lawrence in the head. There was a couple plays where Trevor Lawrence kept the ball on the run. He took some hard hits, took a huge hit in the pocket where he got the wind knocked out of him and took a hit to the head again on a touchdown run late in the game. And every time he just got up, smiled, and said, let's get back and play some football. And I loved it because, first of all, with Trevor Lawrence, I think there's this perception that because he's kind of tall and handsome and he's got the long hair and that he's soft. And if you watch Trevor Lawrence, that dude ain't soft, okay? That dude ain't soft. That's one. And I think two, on top of that, on top of everything else, I think that teams think that they can get in his head, and I think he actually enjoys the physicality of football. I think he enjoys putting down his shoulder and picking up that extra yard. As a matter of fact, I think he should probably do it less. And I love that in this era of college football, and I remember saying this after the playoff, This era of college football, where all the players, and I talked about this on last show, but the players, it's so unfair. They're taking a beating and they're getting nothing in return and their life is so tough. Like, it'd be easy for Trevor Lawrence to run out of bounds. It'd be easy for Trevor Lawrence to say, I'm not keeping it on a QB, you know, on a QB keeper. I'm not keeping, I'm not taking a hit when I'm going to be making, you know, I'm going to 
sign for $30 million next year and probably make $150, $200 million, probably more than that, probably $500 million over the course of my football career. I'm not taking this hit, but no, Trevor Lawrence loves it. Trevor Lawrence loves getting popped. He loves putting his shoulder down and popping somebody else. So that was one of my takeaways from Saturday. Shout out to Trevor Lawrence. I think he just loves taking hits. I think he loves the physicality of football. And in this day and age, I love to see it. And then the second thing that I took out of this, and this is going to sound crazy. I don't think Clemson played their best game on Saturday. And I don't know if we got any Clemson fans listening. If we do, shout out to you guys. Um, But I'm going to tell you this. When I look back on this game, I thought Clemson at times was a little sloppy. Now, they pulled away late. The final score wouldn't say it. But you look at that you look at that box score, you watch the game. First of all, Clemson had three kicks blocked, including one that was returned for a touchdown. They had a lot of dumb penalties, eight penalties for 85 yards, including a couple holding calls that really negated big plays. Trevor Lawrence had a pick early that was overturned because of an offside. So like I'm just saying there was little things that I think Dabo Sweeney can go into the film room on Monday and say, you know what, guys, we were good but we can be even better. And that's the scary thing to me. And that is why I believe right now Clemson should be the favorite. We'll see what Ohio State looks like. But clearly Alabama has some deficiencies on defense. Clearly we're not sure what to expect from Georgia on offense. And so I think when you look at Clemson, they are by far the most balanced on offense with the very talented defense almost equivalent to Georgia. And I look at them and I say, man, they are, again, not only in the mix, but probably the favorite. Obviously, last year they end up losing to LSU, but national champions the year before easily could have won it last year, and I do believe that, uh, that they're right there, that they are in the short conversation of two or three teams that can actually win it, and I think they can play with and beat anybody in college football. Monday, uh, Miami game on Saturday was that signature win. All right, so I do still have a few more topics that I want to hit on, but as I said, I just think that what we'll do, we'll take a quick break. I'm just going to throw in a quick interstitial, let you guys chill out, let me catch my breath, do a second half of the show. I think I'm going to do this a lot on Mondays because it is a lot of content to get to. But coming up, we're going to talk the Texas A&M game. We're going to talk LSU being terrible. And we're going to talk Arkansas getting jobbed by the SEC. All right. I am back, uh, and I know that was obviously just a very quick break, but I do think, especially on these Monday episodes, they're getting longer and longer. I'm probably not going to have a ton of guests because I just feel like on a Monday after college football, there is so much to talk about. It just feels good to have a little bit of a break. I think it's good to break it up from my perspective. I think it's good to break it up for you guys as listeners. I do think, by the way, also that we'll probably have some advertisers coming in there in that middle chunk, uh, which will help this out. And I should mention also, if you ever want to advertise, feel free to reach out to me, Aaron Torres, podcastquestions at gmail.com, and I will put you in, in touch with the right people at Kentucky Sports Radio, Aaron Torres, podcastquestions at gmail.com. But let's get into the second half of the show. And there are a few more topics. So when I say second half, it's going to be much shorter than the first half. Don't worry. I'm not going another 45 or 50 minutes here. But the big story that I do want to hit on here right now is Texas A&M. Texas A&M hosted Florida. Texas A&M gets a signature win, but it's more than just a win. It is much, much, much more if you're both Jimbo Fisher or an Aggies fan. And to give you a little backstory, it really goes back to what we talked about last week. Jimbo Fisher is now in year three at Texas A&M, and for the most part, he has largely been pretty good, right? Wins nine games the first year, goes eight and five last year. Um, And for the most part, just like he takes care of the teams that he's supposed to. He beats the Mississippi States and the Ole Misses and the schools like that. But the issue has been how he has fared against the really good teams. And it's one thing if you're not getting it done in year one. It's one thing if you're not getting it done in year two. But year three, the issue came last Saturday in Tuscaloosa. Because when it's year three, and you're getting paid what Jimbo Fisher is getting paid, you can't lose by four touchdowns to Alabama because what it makes it look like is the gap between the good teams and the bad teams is actually growing, and it should be shrinking if you're paying Jimbo Fisher what you're paying him. And that is where the issue kind of comes in. And I mentioned it last week, but it is important for the context of this conversation, and that's that Jimbo Fisher is getting paid a lot of money, right? Like every college football coach in America, especially at the Power 5 level, gets paid well. 
Jimbo Fisher is one of the most insane contracts I've ever seen. To get him away from Florida State, and I don't blame Texas A&M, you got to pay what you have to pay to get a really good coach. Jimbo Fisher got a fully guaranteed 10-year, $75 million contract. Fully guaranteed means that if Jimbo Fisher just stinks, if Jimbo Fisher were to lose every game this year, every game next year goes 0-12, and they have to fire him because he stinks, they would still owe him all $75 million for that entire contract for his entire salary. And so when you're getting paid that much, it feels good to win nine games, feels good to win eight games, but at some point you got to beat somebody worth your salt. And when you're coming off a loss to Alabama, a lot of people are questioning, are we going to be stuck in perpetuity just beating the bad teams and losing to the good teams? Well, as we found out on Saturday, that is not the case as Texas A&M beats Florida last second field goal and they win that game 41-38. to uh, first of all, a couple things. First of all, shout out to A&M fans because, and I know A&M fans are going to get mad at me for saying this, but uh, it was kind of funny. There was no way that stadium was at 25% capacity. Now, I'm somebody, I think we should be opening things up more. So if it was at 40%, 35%, I think that that's fine with me. But there was no way it was at 25%. A&M fans will tell you that's nonsense. It's media. It's fake news. That stadium was not at 25%. But they were loud. They influenced the game. And what's crazy is if you reflect back on the game, it's kind of what I said a minute ago with Clemson. It's not as though A&M in beating Florida even played their best game. Now, you can say the same about Florida, but when you watch the game, if you watch the game, and there was a lot going on, especially in that noon window, but A&M falls down early, can't get a defensive stop early, and is largely beating themselves with penalty after penalty after penalty every time they think they have a drive stopped. Another dumb penalty, excuse me, that keeps the Florida drive going. They score touchdowns, this, that. There's an interception that gets called back because of a dumb penalty. And so the game to me changed late in the third quarter when Florida went up 28-17. to And what happened at that point was very simply this. The play before there was really a kind of a dirty play from a Florida player, kind of shoved a, a, a Texas A&M player, kind of, a, you know, when he was standing in the middle of the pile. I actually thought it was a little undercover during the game. I felt like the guys talking about the game could have talked about it more because he really could have hurt, and hurt the poor kid at Texas A&M. But then one of the Texas A&M kids comes in and shoves the guy who shoved the first guy. And so it's offsetting penalties. Jimbo Fisher freaks out. And the next play... Kyle Trask throws a bomb to go up 28 to 17. And that was the moment where you're kind of, if you're watching the game, probably I'm guessing AM fans who do listen to this show, you can check in with me. But that's probably where you're like, oh, here we go again. We're undisciplined, can't get off the field, can't make plays on offense. We suck. And you know who else probably felt that way, honestly? Was Jimbo Fisher. Because they cut to the sidelines. Jimbo Fisher is going ballistic on his players. It's unacceptable. I don't know what he said, but it's unacceptable. It doesn't, you got to be better than this, this, that, the other thing. And then a funny thing happened. After Jimbo Fisher chewed Texas A&M out, they were phenomenal. Next series, how about this? 19 play, 76 yard drive. And on that 19 play, 76 yard drive, 17 plays were rushing plays. And so essentially what happened was this. Texas A&M lined up. Jimbo Fisher told his guys, get tough, get physical. Let's beat these guys up because we're better than them and we're not losing this game. And the Texas A&M players, to their credit, responded. They got physical. They dominated the line of scrimmage. They ran the ball at will. And they cut the lead from 28-17 to 28-24. A&M gets a defensive stop. And then the next series, that's the one where Isaiah Spiller... Their star running back just trucks a dude into the end zone to score what was eventually what was a go-ahead touchdown and what essentially was the touchdown that helped them win the game. AM kicks a last second field goal, they celebrate, and AM finally has their signature victory. And so when I look back on Saturday, a couple different thoughts on the game itself. The first one is I'm just happy for everybody at AM, right? Like we're all fans of somebody, and AM you know, they've been knocking on this door for a while now. I know they had their, their, the highs of the Johnny Manziel season in 2013, but I was happy for them. I was happy for the players. It's clear the players are working hard. It's clear they believe in Jimbo Fisher, but they just hadn't had that breakthrough moment yet. I was also happy for Kellen Mond. 
Kellen Mond, their quarterback, who's taken nothing but crap because he can't beat Tua, because he can't beat Trevor Lawrence, because he can't beat Joe Burrow. And that's not a knock on him because nobody's beating those guys. So I'm happy for them. I'm obviously happy for the fans. Shout out to the quote-unquote 25% of you that were at the stadium. It's a lot more than that, but whatever. I, I love you guys, Aggies fans. Don't be mad at me. But then the second thing is, you know who else I'm kind of happy for? I'm actually happy for Jimbo Fisher. And look, I, I understand there's no sympathy for a guy who's getting paid $75 million guaranteed to coach a college football team. I get that. I understand that. I don't feel bad for him necessarily, but I do think the narrative that like he couldn't beat anybody was a little bit overblown. The Alabama games were bad, yes, but a lot of people look bad against Alabama. Ironically, only Lane Kiffin's the one that has Saban figured out, but neither here nor there. But that's one. Two, he just kind of was he, – he didn't look good against Bama, but he also had the disadvantage of, like, he just kind of got screwed on the schedule. I mean, years ago, AM schedules a home-and-home with Clemson, and that home-and-home coincides with, with him arriving at Texas A&M. So he finally gets away from Dabo and Clemson in the ACC when he was at Florida State, only to get to A&M and have to play them twice. And when you look at his resume, he's now 19-10 and 10 overall at A&M, but seven of those 10 losses were to top four teams in the country. And so if Jimbo Fisher, if 10 years ago when A&M scheduled the home-and-home home with Clemson, if they had just scheduled instead of Clemson, if they had scheduled Pitt or Boston College or... Wake Forest, or literally any team in the ACC except for Clemson, Jimbo probably has two more wins on his resume. He wins 10 games his first year, nine games his second year, and it's a completely different narrative. Not to mention, he got screwed because it happened that he had the crossover game with Georgia last year, so he had to go to Georgia, almost beat Georgia at Georgia, and you take that game off if you have Vandy instead of Georgia in that given year, or if you get Georgia at home, maybe it's a different deal. We might be talking about back-to-back 10-win seasons. So I don't believe that this guy forgot how to coach. I just believe he's been at a disadvantage with the schedule. What I would also say is what Kellen Mond said after the game, which is that right there, that might be the signature win that turns around the program at Texas A&M. Because if you look at what happened, one, they beat a really good team, and two, they, they, they created an identity. They are now physical and tough and run the ball, and they're going to use play action. I get that. But it's also like they kind of showed like, you know, we can, we can get physical and we kind of have an identity, and they need to have that balance and th to have success. But I think they will. If you could push around Florida, you could basically push around anybody, right? And it's kind of funny because I do think that when you look at the rest of the schedule – it's crazy how quickly stuff changes in college football, right? Last week, it was Jimbo can't beat anybody. He's terrible. He's this. He's that. A&M, they're never going to get over the hump. And now you look at it, and it's kind of the exact opposite. All of a sudden, LSU, who we're going to get into in a minute, looks terrible. And all of a sudden, you look at that LSU game, and you say, I don't know. I think they could beat LSU. They get LSU at home. Not only do I think they can beat LSU, I think they will beat LSU. Auburn looks terrible. I'm sorry, Auburn fans. I know you think that I hate you. I don't. I just don't think your team's very good. We're going to talk about Auburn in a second, too. They play Arkansas, who's good, but let's be honest. They should be favored against Arkansas. They play Mississippi State, who's struggling. They play South Carolina, who's struggling. And so when I look at this team, I think the toughest game left on their schedule is like at Tennessee. A&M should be favored maybe at Tennessee. And all of a sudden, you're talking about a team that a minute ago, we were ready to throw dirt on their grave. Now, I think it's very realistic. They go 9-1. and one. They would still need some help to get to the SEC championship game. But I don't think it's inconceivable that if they finish 9-1, and one, that they have a shot at that college football playoff because of how everything else is going to break down. Georgia's obviously going to have at least a loss or two. Alabama's going to have a loss or two. Of course, Alabama would have the dominant win over Texas, but Texas A&M would have the head-to-head -head win over Florida. So it is just amazing how quickly things turn in college football. Speaking of how quickly things turn in college football, how about them LSU Tigers? My, oh, my, oh, my. Does it feel like a long time ago <laughs> that that confetti was falling in the Superdome on Joe Burrow's hair? 
it was crazy because I was thinking about this as I as I watched Missouri beat Tech, uh, LSU. For people who did not see, LSU got run off the field in Missouri. Final score was 45-41. Missouri beats LSU. But it was crazy because I was thinking about last year. And I was thinking about who LSU had to beat to win the national championship. They beat Texas on the road. They beat Alabama in the regular season. They beat Florida. They beat Auburn. They beat Texas A&M. They beat Georgia in the SEC championship game. They beat Oklahoma. They beat Clemson in the playoffs. So think about that. Last year, this is who they had to beat to win a national championship. Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, which is insane in its own right. Literally the top three teams in the country right now, LSU beat last year. Oklahoma, Auburn, Florida, Texas A&M, Texas. That's insane. That's insane. And then you move to 2020, where everything's upside down. LSU is now 1-2 with losses to Mississippi State and Missouri. And I'll give myself a little bit of a pat on the back here. You know, nobody loves patting themselves on the back more than AT, right? But when I look at this game, I will say that I do think that part of it is what I said after the Mississippi State game. I just don't think this team is very good. And I said it after the Mississippi State game. I will give myself credit because I think everybody else was going crazy about Mike Leach. And while I was certainly going crazy about Mike Leach, I just said, I don't think LSU's that good, man. And it's not Ed Orgeron's fault. And this isn't like some indictment on Ed Orgeron that he sucks or that he's this or that he's that. But they lost 14 guys to the NFL draft. And I just said, I don't think this team is very good right now. And I think that's reflected in what happened on Saturday. Now, I will say, the offense has gotten much better since that, that uh, Mississippi State game. But when you look at the defense, I mean, the defense is embarrassing. At Missouri, 586 yards of total offense against Missouri, who, by the way, freshman starting, making his first career start. Now, he played well against Tennessee, but first career start. And how about this? Five Missouri wide receivers were out because of COVID. 586 yards, five receivers out. That's insane. And I think when it goes back to, I just don't think this team is that good. I don't think they're talented. Sadly, their best player on defense, Derek Stingley, is hurt. That's part of it as well. He's kind of the leader of the defense. I also think this kind of reflects on Bo Pelini. For people who don't know, Bo Pelini, former Nebraska coach, he's kind of a, a, <laughs> a Twitter meme, a Twitter gif. Uh, he's their defensive coordinator right now, and they are terrible. Now, I think part of it is I don't think he inherited all that much returning talent. I know he didn't return all that much, inherit all that much returning talent, but to give up 600-plus yards in the first game of SEC play against Mississippi State. By the way, Mississippi State has gone on to score 23 total points since that game. Lose to Arkansas, lose to Kentucky. That's one. Two... You then give up almost 600 yards to Missouri without five wide receivers. And so I'm not Mr. like, everybody's got to be fired and this guy's got to go. I think it's a ticking time bomb for Bo Pelini, though. I think the combination of they don't have very much talent with the fact Bo Pelini, check this out, $2.3 million a year as LSU's defensive coordinator. That's what he's getting paid. I don't think he's going to be there very long. And the one thing I'll say about Coach O, Coach O, you can say whatever you want about him. Give him credit for this. He is not afraid to move off of a guy that isn't getting the job done. If you remember his first full year as head coach, right? He has the season where he becomes the interim when Les Miles is fired, and then he becomes the head coach. His first year, he hired an offensive coordinator named Matt Canada. Didn't work out. One year later, fired him. I think Bo Pelini's got this year, and if it doesn't get better in a hurry, I think he's out. And I'll be honest, I don't think he's getting better in a hurry because everybody in the SEC is scoring points. How about this? LSU still has Florida this coming weekend. You know Florida can score points. Still got Bama. You know Bama can score points. You got Ole Miss. You know Ole Miss can score points. You got A&M. You know A&M can score points. You also got Auburn on the road, which isn't going to be easy. LSU always struggles at Auburn. And so I'm just saying... I think it's going to be tough for Bo Pelini to survive because I don't think that this defense is getting better relative to the competition. All right, last little topic I want to get to, the end of that Arkansas-Auburn game. Uh, There's really nothing to say other than Arkansas just got screwed. 
right? Like, I mean, there's some times where a call goes 50-50 and it could go either way. And was it the right call? Was it the wrong call? What it, could it, that was just the wrong call. That was just the wrong call. And so for people who didn't see it, and I know I'm going really long on this show right now, but I hope you guys are digging it. Um, if you watch the game, here was the situation. Is that Auburn and Arkansas are playing. They're playing late. They're driving. It's a, it's a wet, nasty day. And Arkansas, who again, probably worth noting, I think they went 2-10 last year, hadn't won an SEC game in almost three full years until last Saturday. Uh, Arkansas's driving. And Arkansas, or excuse me, Auburn's driving, and Arkansas has the lead 28-27. Now, it wasn't the best day for Arkansas's defense, but they got a missed field goal, and they had a chance to win late in the game. Auburn gets the ball back. Auburn is driving into Arkansas territory, okay? And in Auburn's defense, they were pretty close. They were getting close. They were getting close. But there's a crucial play where Auburn goes to the line of scrimmage to spike it, to down it, to stop the clock. And this is what happens. Bo Nix, who you guys know I'm not a fan of, Bo Nix takes a snap, fumbles the snap, then picks it up again and tries to spike it. Well... That's literally unprecedented. I don't think anyone has ever seen that exact scenario. But what happened was when he stepped back and he spiked it, it was a lateral pass. It was a backwards pass. And anyone who knows anything about the most fundamental rules of football knows a lateral pass, if it is not caught, and obviously in this case it couldn't be caught because he threw it straight into the ground, is a live football. And you know what happens when a live football happens? Whoever gets on top of it, it's that team's possession. And so Bonick steps back, throws it to the ground. It is a lateral pass, and Arkansas recovers it. And that should be the game. That should be the game right there. But instead, what the officials do is the officials go to the monitor, and they decide that it is a traditional spike. It gives Auburn the ball back. They kick a field goal and win the game. And Arkansas fans are apoplectic. They are furious, and they have every right to be because the refs completely screwed it up. Now, I will say, I will say Auburn fans listening are going to be mad at me, but According to the SEC, the SEC made this argument essentially that they believe that the call was made on the field correctly. And the reason that the call was made on the field correctly, this is directly from the SEC offices. They said during the subsequent replay review, there is conclusive video evidence that the pass was backwards. However, because recovery of the football was not clearly made in the immediate continuing football action, the ruling on the field was determined to be under rule, blah, 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 blah. Both the determination of a backwards pass and the immediate clear recovery are required to reverse the ruling on the field. Your boy AT is going to call shenanigans on this one. Essentially what the SEC office is saying is, yes, by technicality, it was a backwards pass, but because the ball was not recovered immediately, it was deemed to be a dead ball which is nonsense. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. And what I believe truly happened is I believe it was something that the refs had never seen before, that frankly, probably most of the players, most of the coaches had never seen before, and the refs didn't know what to do. And the refs froze. And the refs treated it as a spiked football when it should not have been treated as a spiked football and gave possession to Auburn. Because, you know, there was one person in that building that I am positive knew that rule, and that was Arkansas head coach Sam Pittman. Because Sam Pittman, right away, he ran over to the refs. He goes, that is a lateral pass. That is a backwards pass. That's our ball. We recovered. And the refs just kind of looked at him like they didn't know what was going on. And it was so obvious that Sam Pittman knew the rule, that the refs realized they screwed up, and that they defended their actions by going to the monitor, coming up with some nonsense, whatever. So Arkansas literally should be 2-1 and one right now. And they lost a game they shouldn't have because it should have been a fumble. Auburn should have never kicked that field goal. Arkansas should have won 28-27. Nonsense, ridiculousness, absurdity. The SEC office screwed it up plain and simple. Now, I do want to say one more thing, though. I don't think that it should overshadow what Sam Pittman has done at Arkansas. And I talked about it last week. I don't want to get too much into it. But the fact that, like, like, like the fact that we are arguing over a last-second play that should have sealed an Arkansas victory, it shows you how far this program has come. Never forget, this is a team, Chad Morris last year, they were abysmal. 
By, by the way, Chad Morris, ironically, on the sideline, of course, for Auburn last week. But Chad Morris, never forget, this is a team that last year under Chad Morris went 2-8 and eight under him and then 2-10 and 10 overall. And they lost to Auburn at home, mind you, by 41 points. And this game came down to a botched referee's call. And I know if you're an Arkansas fan, you're not using that as an excuse. You don't care. You deserve the win, and I respect that. I have no hate, no shame in your game. You should feel that way. But what I would also say is this should not undermine how successful this organization has become or how successful this program has become since Sam Pittman. They are completely different on defense. I know it wasn't a great day for the defense, but I thought they played very well. And the offense, I think, is coming together with Felipe Franks. The fact that they had that success without their best skill position player, Rakeem Boyd, is a testament to the fact that these guys really do believe in what their coordinators, Kendall Bryles and Barry Odom, are doing and what Sam Pittman is doing as the head coach of this team. So I hope, uh, you know, Arkansas fans, I hope you're doing okay. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, that's really it. Uh, and I think that's it for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. We're over an hour of nothing but your boy, AT. So I think that's all for today's show. Hope you enjoyed Monday's episode. I'll say this, one quick housekeeping note. Tuesday's show, I will address the Greg Marshall stuff that's going on in college basketball. A lot of you guys still love my college basketball coverage even more than my college football coverage, and I get it. I'm really good. Hate to brag. But it's a huge story, but I just didn't think on a college football Saturday that it was worth getting too much into because I got the Tuesday episode now to break it all down. So Tuesday, I will talk Greg Marshall. I will talk about whatever pops up uh, on Monday. And we'll also do a little where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. But that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. And it was a barn burner. I want to thank you guys for listening. Make sure you're subscribed. iTunes, the podcast, Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Pod Paradise, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Also, if you're not following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Podcast Question, or at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres Pod on uh, Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, anything else, feel free to reach out, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Oh, hit up the YouTube page. A lot of stuff from this show on YouTube. If you want shorter clips, uh, that's cool, but also just make sure to subscribe. It does help me. Uh, that's also where you can catch up on all the old um, interviews that I've done, stuff like that. I've posted a lot of the, the stuff that I've done here over the last six months. But that is all for today's show. Shout out to your boy, Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. And I'll be back on Tuesday, baby.